You're listening to a podcast from the RSA. You can find out more about RSA events and projects and how to get involved with the fellowship by visiting our website, thersa.org. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Tony Greenham, Director of Economy, Enterprise and Manufacturing here at the RSA, and it is my great pleasure to welcome you here for today's event. I was really delighted to bag this lecture uh, by Dan Lyons because, as some of you may know, my background was in investment banking. I left that industry at the peak of the first dot-com boom, and some of what he talks about in his book was bringing back memories for me. And it's a great book. It has some laugh-out-loud moments. For me, some of those moments were on the top deck of the 176 bus from Penge, which isn't the best place to be laughing out loud. It makes you look as though you know, you've lost the plot. But anyway, um, it's not just a funny book, because Dan has got some really important insights uh, to bring to us about the state of the tech industry, Silicon Valley, what the model is behind venture capital's uh, interest in this sector, how quickly companies grow, how quickly they come to the public markets. And some of the you know, stories he tells about that industry actually raise some pretty important social and economic issues, which, of course, here at the RSA are of great interest to us. So without further ado, please join me in welcoming Dan Lyons. Thank you, uh, Tony, and thank you for, for having me uh, here. It's, um, it's always nice when you publish a book to have even one person interested in hearing you talk about it other than your own family, so, uh, and they're all sick of hearing it, so um, yeah, thank you. Uh, I, I also want to preface my remarks by saying I, I'm, I'm not an investment banker by, by training or an economist, and uh, I, I'm very much a, a layperson. Um, Worse than that, I'm a comedy writer and, and a journalist. Uh, um, for about the last 10 years, I've been writing satire about Silicon Valley. I, I had a blog where I pretended to be Steve Jobs. And um, in the last couple of years, I've, I've, I've helped out as a sort of writer on this HBO comedy show called Silicon Valley that's kind of a satire of Silicon Valley. Um, but for most of my career before that, I was a, a technology journalist um, and in 2012, I was at Newsweek. I was the technology editor at Newsweek, and I got laid off as the media business was collapsing. Um, and I decided to do something that I always wanted to do. I'd always, always had this fantasy of crossing over and working for one of these companies that I, I covered or wrote about. And um, I also felt that I was in a situation where I didn't have much choice, that, that there really weren't a lot of other jobs in the media business. And I... I had you know, heard everything we've all heard about how you can reinvent yourself and you can start a new career. And my idea was I was going to become a marketing guy. I thought, what, 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 how do you take your media skills, which are essentially that you can report and write a story? So I thought that would apply well, and I'd, I'd become a marketing guru. And uh, the nutshell version of my book is that this did not go well. Um, <clears throat> um, but almost by accident, I gained this different perspective on this industry that I'd been covering for uh, 20 or 25 years. And, and that led me to write uh, this book, Disrupted. And the subtitle is, is Ludicrous Misadventures in the Tech Startup Bubble. And I meant the word bubble to have two, two meanings. One is the idea of a valuation bubble, and evaluations kind of run out of control. And the other is the idea of a, a filter bubble, the idea that, that people in this ecosystem of startups and in the tech industry in general, I think, uh, live in a kind of alternate reality. Um, 
when Steve Jobs was alive, they used to talk about him creating a reality distortion field around himself. And I think, to some extent, the entire industry now lives in a little bit of a reality distortion field. Um, my book sort of functions on two levels. On one hand, it's just an entertainment, which is originally what I set out to write, which is just a funny book about being the old guy in a startup full of young people. Um, Along the way, as I was writing it, it became something more than that, and I, I started wrestling with sort of larger ideas about why the industry has become the way it has. And I think it's changed drastically since the 1980s when I began uh, writing about technology. Um, Silicon Valley, I still think, remains an, an incredible engine of innovation and, and a very unique and special place. Um, and I think there are some things there that the rest of the world can, can learn from and copy. But I also tend to think there are some things maybe that we, we should not emulate. And, and the biggest things have to do with the way Silicon Valley hires people and manages people. Um, and what concerns me is that Silicon Valley as a model is one that I see legacy companies, older companies in the United States, rushing out to copy literally you know, sending teams of people in week-long fantasy camps to Silicon Valley, to San Francisco, to go see real startups in the wild you know, and sort of visit them. This is true. And, um, and learn from them. And you see established companies setting up little incubators or, or uh, venture arms or seed arms or angel rounds. So they're all trying to get in San Francisco, it's almost as if you can just, if you breathe the same air and buy some beanbag chairs, you know, you'll, you'll, um, you'll maybe somehow become more innovative. Um, and I think that that is uh, spreading globally, the, the, this sort of model. Um, and I worry that even as we make progress in some ways, um, that in other ways we're actually taking steps backward. So in some ways I think as a journalist covering technology, I had been incredibly naive about the industry I covered. And I fancied myself a very cynical person, and I still do, and a very skeptical person like most journalists. And yet, I, I think there were many things that I was very naive about. Um, for example, I really believed that startups were great places to work. This would be a fantastic place to work. I was always jealous of the people I was writing about. Um, not only because they were at places like Google, where you saw ordinary people just make incredible amounts of money, just, just ridiculously huge amounts of money. But also, they always seem to be having way more fun than, than my colleagues and I were having. You know? um, but I was working in, in magazines and newspapers. I was at Forbes for 10 years and then at Newsweek. And we were sort of slowly going out of business. And we were in, you could look at, if you were a business journalist, you could look at your own industry and see the, the macro trends and see this, where this was going. And meanwhile, here are these guys in Silicon Valley that are growing like crazy and throwing off lots of money, and everybody's having a blast. Um, and I sort of expected to... I wanted to go for that ride. Um, I went to work for a company called HubSpot, which happens to be in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I, I live in Boston, so it was nearby. I didn't have to move to California. Um, and most people have never heard of them. Um, I had never heard of them, uh, even though I covered technology. But they were... Um, you know, there's this term in the, in the States now, and most of you have probably heard it, but a unicorn, right? Uh, a unicorn company meaning a private company that has a valuation of more than a billion dollars. Um, when I joined HubSpot, they were not a unicorn, but they were kind of one that my friends who were venture capitalists kind of said, these guys are onto something. They're kind of a sleeper. They're going to have a huge IPO, and they're going to they're be a unicorn. And I thought, well, that would be, you know, 
A, fun, and, and B, you know, I might, I, I'm joining way too late to get rich, right? But it would be fun to see one of these places as it goes from being this sleeper company that no one's heard of to this publicly traded company that becomes a unicorn. What would it be like to be inside that? This is the lobby of HubSpot. It's a, you know, it's a very nice kind of place. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a software company. And just in a nutshell, what they make is software for, for, for marketing people. It's in a kind of a weird end of the software business called marketing automation, which, as the name implies, basically takes boring chores that marketing people do and automates them. So uh, essentially, it lets you send email spam if you want to you know, uh, bombard 1,000 people with you know those emails you get in your inbox that are really annoying from some store. That, that's us. And, um, and another aspect of this software was stuff that would let you uh, juice your, uh, your, um, your website so that it would rank higher on Google, right? Um, so, you know, not rocket science, but, but you know, a real business. And, um, and they, uh, they generate real revenue. Um, but when I got in there, there was, it was unlike any place I had ever worked. It was um, this huge emphasis on culture. They were obsessed with culture and had a culture code, and they talked about the culture all the time. And the culture was largely built around fun. We had to be having fun at all times, right? And uh, this is a real picture of real HubSpot people um, having fun. And um, you'll notice that some of them are wearing orange because orange was the corporate culture. And people really came to work dressed in orange shoes and orange hats and shirts and clothing. And they would go out and buy orange things. They felt a loyalty to this company that you would feel, people feel for the sports team, right? And they had all the, the regular kooky startup stuff. They had foosball and ping pong and video games and free beer and dogs were running around. We had beanbag chairs in the conference room instead of real chairs. And I felt like, you know, this 900-year-old man because I just didn't want to sit in a beanbag chair and have a, have a, a meeting. I, I, I feel like you can't be a grown person and, and have a serious conversation on beanbag chairs. Or, uh, we had bouncy balls, you know, at the desk. And my first day I got there and they took me to this desk and said, well, here's your desk. And it was a bouncy ball. And I thought, I'm 52 years old and, and if, if I sit on this, I'm going to fall off of it, you know. And then they're all going to be like laughing at me like this, right? So, but, but they don't want to be the 52-year-old guy asking for a real chair, because then I look even older than I am, but I had to slowly, I sort of, on the sly, went over and asked somebody quietly, like, could I have a real chair? And they went and got me one. Um, so, it's like, I think if you have a startup now, it's almost like you have to have this culture. There's a, a professor at Harvard Business School who calls it insta-culture or a pop-up culture. You just go get all this stuff and throw it in a room and like, there's your startup, right? Um, and it's almost like, um, like college never ended. It was a little bit, I sometimes say it was like a cross between a frat house and a Montessori preschool and a, and a Scientology compound, right? And, um, and it was, you know, all the bright basic colors, lots of toys. Um, and it was literally Nerf gun wars, you know, the whole thing. And, and it was very, very young. The average employee was 26 years old. And I knew that sort of going in, but I didn't realize there was almost no one over 30. Like, there were really... Very few people over 30, and they were the old people. Over 40, almost invisible, and over 50 people would leap back when they saw me in the hallway. Like, you know, they thought maybe I, had, I was someone's parent. I had wandered into the office, you know, and they, they were going to help me. And I'd be like, no, 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 I have a badge. I work here. And um, um, there was one other old guy who was slightly older than me who found me on my first day because he had heard I was joining, and he was so happy to have a friend. And we used to go out to lunch every day and complain about working with these kids and then I realized we look really old sitting here together like the two grumpy old guys. We can't do this anymore. We had to break up. Um, so 
the first thing you had to do with this company was go through two weeks of training. And it was, in theory, to teach you how to use the product so you'd know how to sell it or do anything with it, which was, seemed good. But when you got in, it was really kind of like cult brainwashing. And these are real terms they would use. They would say that we all had superpowers. You know, I'm like, what's your superpower? My superpower is this, and I, I don't have any superpowers. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm 52. You know, and they asked us, I'm, I'm a washed-up old hack from a magazine. You know, uh, they asked us, what makes you special? What makes you unique? And I'd be like, I, um, I, I'm the only one in the room who's had a colonoscopy. You know, or, or who's had a, uh, I'm. I'm I, I have high, high, high cholesterol. I take, I take a statin every day. I take Lipitor. I, I, I don't know. Nothing really makes me unique. You know, I was terrified. Um, and they, um, so, and, and they, they talked about we've been called to this incredible mission. Now, we're sending email spam, but, you know, whatever. Saying we're changing the world. And, and the other thing was it was harder to get a job here than, than to get accepted at Harvard. Right? Which was like ridiculous. I mean, it is statistically true that Harvard has like a 6% acceptance rate. And so there are actually some McDonald's outfits and some Walmart locations that actually have a, 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 a lower acceptance rate because more people apply for those jobs. It doesn't mean that you know, it's like getting into Harvard. But anyway, um, but they did think that. They thought, like, we are really special. We have superpowers. We've been called out from thousands of applicants to be here for this special mission. Um, and they had invented their own language. It was like joining this cult that had been around for seven years um, without any access to the outside world. So they, they talked about delightion. Delightion was a word that they made up, which comes from the word delight, which meant we were in the business. We weren't in the business of selling software. That wasn't what we did. We created moments, magical moments of delightion for people that changed their lives, right? And um, now, if you're 22 and right out of college and someone tells you this, you kind of believe it, right? If you're my age, you're th- sitting there going, oh, my God, right? This is like... <laughs> I mean, the, one part of me is thinking, what have I done with my life, right? And the other part of me is thinking, this is the best thing ever, right? You know, this is so amazing, right? They talked about being lovable. We didn't sell spam. What we sold was lovable marketing content, right? And they talked about making one plus one equals three. That was a big thing for us, that our software made one plus one equals three. And the people would use that as an adjective, saying, I like that idea, but it's not one plus one equals three enough. And... Um, and when someone got fired, they called it graduation, and they were all very positive about it. So you get this email, this very cheery email saying, you know, Derek has graduated and he's going to go use his superpower somewhere else and we can't wait to see what he does in his next rock star adventure because we're all rock stars too. And I was like, um, so, so it was just very Orwellian, right? The language to me as an older person and as a journalist, the, the use of language and the shifting of language was, you know, set my antenna off. Like this is, you know, the, the, a, a bad sign, like a red flag. Um, a very big scary moment for me was this. Um, this um, the, the co-founder of the company, the two co-founders, fashioned himself kind of a management guru, and he wrote a big essay in LinkedIn about his teddy bear and how he believed you should always be solving for the customer. And to remind everybody of that, in his management meetings, he started bringing this teddy bear to meetings called Molly, and Molly um, uh, was the stand-in for the customer. And I thought that was crazy, and... Um, but no one else did. This was the amazing thing. Like 500 people, I couldn't find one other cynic who would say, like, okay, this is nuts, right? I mean, you know, I would be like, let's go into a secret room and we can just admit that we know this is crazy. But no one would, right? Um, and to me, that was scarier even than um, the fact that the guy brought the teddy bear was that no one would laugh at it. And I called this friend of mine who was a former journalist who had become a marketing guy, but at a big, big multinational company. And I said, is this, read this article on LinkedIn. Is this normal? You know, is this what I've signed up for? And he was like, no, even in the corporate world, this is not normal. Like, run, this is Jonestown, right? This is, this is you know, this is bad. Um, 
also, I'm sitting there as a business journalist, and I'm looking at their business model after I get embedded, and, and I realize they're growing very fast, but they're losing a lot of money. Um, and basically, they were in the business of kind of buying dollar bills at face value and selling them for 75 cents, and then going, wow, business is booming, right? Well, yeah, it is. And, and, uh, and, and then you don't know how the profits arise, but I guess, you know, volume, right? So um, to me, it made no sense. And, but in the end, I was wrong about that, too, just like I was wrong about the teddy bear. Um, the company went public while I was there, while losing money. The stock popped on the first day, has continued to soar. They've still never turned a profit. I've been gone for a year and a half. Um, and uh, by all, you know, I guess by, by most people's perspective, they're a very, very successful company. They're worth something like $2 billion now in market value. Um, there's an ugly side note, which is that after I left and they found out I was writing this book, they asked me, I said, I'm writing this funny memoir about being an old guy trying to reinvent myself and failing. And um, they, I guess they freaked out and they, they got caught trying to hack my computer and trying to engage in some kind of extortion thing. The CMO got fired. The FBI did this investigation. The CEO was sanctioned. And so I thought of these guys as sort of lovable doofuses and I was writing this book about my crazy adventure. And then I came to think there was maybe something a little more sinister about the whole thing. Um, I also came away seeing the entire industry that I was in in a new way. Like I, I'm old enough to have begun my career covering people like Bill Gates at Microsoft when he was starting out and Lotus and, and, I, and Steve Jobs at Apple. And I, I really admired those people. They had real products they wanted to make and they made big, sustainable, profitable companies out of those products. And they really did change the world. The irony is people like Bill Gates never talked about changing the world or being on this special mission. They just kind of did it. Um, I think there are still a lot of people like that in the industry and people who do want to make great products and who are also motivated by trying to solve big, hard uh, problems. Um, but I also think in the last 10 years, the industry has changed. And there's a different kind of person coming into the tech industry now. And it used to be kind of nerds and engineers who had a product and they had to hire some business guys to help them figure out how to make a business out of it. Now it's a lot of people who... Um, don't take this the wrong way, but people, guys, young, young guys who in a previous era would have gone to work on Wall Street trying to make a quick buck selling bonds at, at Goldman Sachs, right? The kind of people might, uh, um, you know, flash boys. Um, so that, I think, has changed the nature of the, of the entire industry. Um, and I have some bullet points now. I'll just try to whip through quickly so we can get to our conversation. But um, some, some observations about the industry. The first one is this. There's a new model that I think is called grow fast, lose money, go public, cash out, right? Um, it used to be that um, companies had to be profitable and growing in order to go public. And in the 90s, that changed. I think Netscape was the turning point. It was the first big company to go public while losing a lot of money. And the stock soared even after its IPO. The company ended up being sold to AOL for pieces um, and, and ultimately was a failure. But people made billions of dollars on it. And I think that was a moment when the industry realized, oh, this is a new racket. We can actually get rich without ever creating a profitable company. Um, um, another big change is that, so now we have this whole ecosystem of money losing companies. Right? Twitter, which you all know and use, has never posted an annual profit. It's more than 10 years old and uh, has lost billions. If you look at their, their income statements in the last few years, just in the last few years have lost billions of dollars, right? Um, another big change is that VCs used to insist that uh, when they invested in a company that had very, very young founders, that the company bring in adult supervision. So it, at Microsoft, <laughs> uh, 
No, yeah, they, would, would bring, they would always bring in the, the old guy in a suit, right? Uh, uh, and who had been, at Microsoft, there was a guy named John Shirley who got brought in to sort of help Bill Gates and Steve Ballmer. And finally, Ballmer grew up and became the CEO. Uh, even at Google, as late as Google, Kleiner Perkins insisted that uh, the Google guys get Eric Schmidt, who is a veteran uh, from Sun Microsystems, to be basically the grown-up. And the Google guys kind of chafed at it, but they, they had to do it. Facebook... I'm not sure they could have made Mark Zuckerberg do anything, but he was very, very smart and brought on Sheryl Sandberg, who was sort of the grown-up and adult from, uh, from uh, Google. And, but now, in the last 10 years, there's been this, it's become the conventional wisdom that actually tech companies are better off without adult supervision, that you don't want to get in the founder's way. So you let this young guy who maybe has never, well, he never run a company, but has maybe never had a job before, give that person you know, $100 million and see what they can do. Um, and that's become kind of the norm. Um, there's another aspect of, the, of, the, of the, the business model. It's called making the movie. While I was working on the book, a friend of mine who's a venture capitalist said, here's how the racket works. If you want to know how I think of what we do, um, I think of myself as a movie producer. Right? I'm a venture capitalist. I have a bunch of money. I want to make a movie. I round up a bunch of money, and I hire a leading man. And I'd really like it if he looked like Mark Zuckerberg. Right, I really like a guy who looks like Mark Zuckerberg, um, young, maybe a little antisocial, right, a little off, um, and um, preferably white male. And uh, I write a script, and the script is that there's this big market that's worth X trillion dollars, and we're going to disrupt it because we have this magic beanstalk that's going to grow to the sky. We have, a, we have a script. And then we take millions and millions of dollars, we try to get some traction, and we invest in, in uh, customer acquisition either subscribers who are paying money or just eyeballs, right, if it's, if it's an advertising-funded play. But basically, we just pump millions of dollars into it, and we don't care. We lose money, but the public market isn't looking at, at the bottom line. They're only looking at the top line. And we create this idea of momentum. And then your IPO, in my, in my mind, is your opening weekend. And I want enough hype and enough momentum that on that opening weekend, I have people lined up around the block to get into the theater to see that show. And then I sell and I'm out. And that's, that's, a, that's a hit for me. That's a blockbuster, right? Um, and I think that is kind of you seeing that over and over again. Um, another line that I heard, this is while I was still working at HubSpot, is that beer is cheap, right? So, so I was asking this, this uh, guy who's a CEO and a, an investor and a board member in a lot of tech companies, why do you let these guys spend so much money? They're losing money hand over fist, and yet they're building beer gardens and all this elaborate, these perks and, and you know, kitchens and... and um, not in so many words, but the, essentially the, the explanation was, look, you're running a company that's never going to make money, right? And it's very labor-intensive. You need to have a lot of people. So you need cheap labor. So the way you get cheap labor is you hire people right out of school, and you feed them this story about a big mission, and you put them in basically a digital sweatshop, and you have them cold-calling people or working the phones or telemarketing, whatever you're going to do. It's actually very low-value uh, work. Um, and you give them beer, and you burn them out, and you churn them out within two years, so they never get any equity, and they leave. And you know, and I was so you're looking at it the wrong way. You're looking at it this is profligate spending, but think about it. Beer is cheap, right? You can drink all the beer you want. We don't care as long as you don't get any equity in our company, right? That's what we really don't want you to have. Um, there's another line that I came across, and this was in our culture code at HubSpot. We're a team, not a family, and it comes from Netflix. In 2009, Netflix famously published the first culture code, which uh, Sheryl Sandberg at, at 
Facebook has said is possibly the most important document ever to come out of Silicon Valley. And this is one of the key lines in it. We're a team, not a family, which means we're like a sports team. We need to have superstars in every position. So we hire and fire all the time. So you shouldn't expect to come here and make a career. You know? We're not your family. We're not here to take care of you. Um, this is expanded upon by Reid Hoffman from LinkedIn, who wrote a book about managing talent in the networked age, who said, you should think of your job as a tour of duty. You know, it's a transaction. You get something from us, we get something from you, and after a year or two, you leave. Um, but what it really means is these companies are very high churn. They're, they're kind of exploiting uh, a lot of young labor and, and turning them in and saying, uh, we're a team, not a family. So don't expect anything from us. We expect loyalty from you. We expect you to come to work wearing orange clothing and to love us, but on a dime, we'll get rid of you. Uh, there, so there's job security has become uh, something that people laugh at. In Silicon Valley, job security isn't even anything anyone aspires to. It's actually thinking, why would you want job security? That's a really old way of thinking. That's, if you even want job security, that means you don't get this. You don't get this world. If you want that, if that's important to you, then you're not the kind of person we want. You should be someone who's a go-getter, who's more energetic. And the other thing I, I saw was this insidious euphemism that is called culture fit, which I came to believe is just bias. So essentially, venture capitalists fund young guys. They hire that actor who looks like Mark Zuckerberg. And they tell him, you go hire whoever you want. And he says, which is something that you see in, in print all the time, I like to hire people who, remind, who, who I'd like to have a beer with after work. Right? That somehow that is the way to hire people, which to me seems the stupidest reason ever to hire anybody. Right? It's also this, and so what they build are frat houses. Right? Young white guys raise money from VCs, go out and hire other guys like themselves, and you get this frat culture. Um, you get bros hiring bros. And what you end up with is what I encountered at HubSpot. There are no people over 40 because it's uncomfortable for them to hire an older person. There are no people of color. At one point, after several months at this company, I went to the first all-hands meeting. I'd never seen the whole company in one place. And I looked out and realized there are no black people here. This is an entire company, 500 people of young, white people. There were a lot of women, but none of them were in roles of, of any importance. Right? Very few people in management who were female. Um, so these are some of the sort of distressing aspects of startup culture that I saw in HubSpot, but also started seeing endemic around the whole industry. And not just sort of something that people apologize for, but quite the opposite, something that people celebrated. Culture fit is still something that in Silicon Valley is celebrated as a great way to build a company. Um, shifting gears... Again, I'm not an economist, but one thing that worries me is this concept of unicorns and how many they are. there are. The original reason that they were called unicorns, it was a, a term coined by a venture capitalist uh, in Silicon Valley, was that they were rare. Right? The idea that you could build a private company and have it be worth more than a billion dollars. When the, when the term was invented in 2013, there were 39 of them. Uh, by January 2015, there were 80, and according to Fortune magazine, and it's starting to freak some people out. People were worried that, like, oh, my God, how did... 40 more billion-dollar companies suddenly emer you know, emerge in one year. Uh, a year later, there were 229, right? So, um, again, I'm not an economist, but I do think there's something weird going on when all this valuation appears out of thin air. And I think it's really not a function of anything to do with the companies as much as the fact that it's just a surplus of money chasing uh, a fixed number of ideas. So you have venture funds that are now awash in money, raising funds that are worth a billion or a billion and a half dollars, and they need to put that money to work. Venture capitalists don't get paid unless the money is, is put to work, and they collect 2% of, of committed capital. So they have an incentive to just take this money and put it someplace. Um, 
The problem is there are only so many ideas, and if you're a VC, you don't want to manage thousands and thousands of little investments, so you start piling into what look like the sure winners. So you think companies like Uber and Airbnb start becoming inflated in value. And then as those become too, uh, too uh, valuable or too highly priced, you start looking elsewhere. So this is an interesting chart from CB Insights about the crowded unicorn club. And you can see as the years go by, suddenly all they, they've just all, all magically appeared uh, out of thin air. Um, this is another one that's a little scary. It says unicorns are a global phenomenon from PwC. Um, it, they're still more concentrated in the U.S. than in, in, in the rest of the world, but I think it's, it's, a, it's, it's spreading. Um, there have lately been some signs of trouble. So Lyft, which is the rival to Uber, has raised private money at a valuation of $5.5 billion and apparently has been trying to shop itself around and wanted to get $9 billion, and no one would pay it. So recently this was a headline. Um, there were a bunch of stories about Lyft has been trying to sell out and can't. And I think there's a sort of sense growing in the valley that someone's going to get caught now. Someone's overpaid, and the public markets aren't going to pay the valuations that we've paid. Unlike the first dot-com bubble, this time the public markets are almost the sensible ones, and the VCs are the irrational ones who have been hung out there always thinking that a bigger fool will come along, but this time maybe not, right? Um, So the question is, who gets hurt? And... um, This is what fascinates me and worries me, is that it's kind of a black box. Because these transactions all happen privately and VC firms don't have to disclose their returns, um, you can see who invested in that last round at Lyft, which VC funds, but you don't know who bought how much and at what valuation. So it's actually, I think, impossible to find out who owns all of Lyft and, and where are they exposed. And if you imagine that across all that universe of unicorns, you now have this big shadow sort of overhang of, of risk hanging out there, and you actually don't know whose risk it is. The other thing that concerns me is I think the risk ripples back, that VCs aren't playing with their own money. They're playing with money from pension funds. And some people have argued that because they're using pension funds and public money, our money, our retirement money, then in a sense they should have to disclose this. But so far they haven't. Um, so I've also been told by someone who's a VC in Silicon Valley that there's nothing to worry about because even if there's a little exposure by pension funds or, or places like Fidelity, mutual funds, it's such a small part of their overall portfolio that it won't hurt them, that even if all these unicorns vanish tomorrow, the damage would be tiny to them. Um, I'm not sure if that's true. That's obviously a venture capitalist who has a vested interest in saying that. Who doesn't get hurt is an actually more interesting question. So last summer, as I was reporting the book, I interviewed uh, a CEO in Silicon Valley. It was off the record, so he was speaking, you know, frankly. And he's also an investor. And he started a bunch of companies in Silicon Valley. He's been around a long time and has done a series of companies. And we were talking about how the Valley had changed. And he said something that really floored me, right? He said... um, who do you think, because I was saying, who's going to get hurt? Like, he agreed with me that these valuations are nuts. So I said, okay, so who gets hurt? And he, and he said, well, who do you think? And I said, well, you know, these crazy investors, these guys who are coming in, like, why are they out of their minds paying billions of dollars for these companies? But that were six months ago were worth half as much. Suddenly now they've, they've doubled in value in six months. That, that's crazy. And he said, no, the investors aren't hurt because they're using something called ratchets, right, which are, they're protected. They've said, okay, I'll pay $10 billion for your company. I'll pay that valuation, but... I want to guarantee if you go public or sell or have an exit at less than $10 billion, you have to make me whole. You're going to issue more shares to me to make me whole on my investment. So essentially, they can't lose, right? They can't be diluted. There's really no risk. It's basically a no-risk loan. In some cases, they're saying, 
you're going to guarantee me a 20% return. So if you go public at 10, I need you to go public at 12, or, or you have to make up the difference. In Square, there's an IPO that happened this year that actually happened, and the ratchets kicked in, and the, the investors were made whole. Then this, this CEO told me something else. The founders of these companies are selling into these private rounds. So they don't care if the, if the valuation is ridiculous. In fact, they love it because they're actually doing their IPO now. They're taking a chunk of their equity and selling it to those late-stage investors at the ridiculous $10 billion valuation and putting the money in their pockets. So if they're, they're already cashed out. So he said to me, so who, who do you think is left? I'm like, uh, I don't know. He's like, look at you, idiot. It's the employees. The employees are the ones who get screwed. And I said, well, the employees have their options marked at the last private round. right? When the company goes public underwater and they do issue more shares to make the investors whole, those employees end up underwater. They're going to have options that are worthless. Now, that's fine if you think that options are just this gravy. You already have a great salary, and options are this extra little kicker, and so you're never going to get it. And it's hard to feel bad for sort of rich techies making a lot of money, except, in fact, many of these people forego salary or part of their salary in order to get the option. So the options are actually their compensation, and the options are funny money. The options are monopoly money. And here's the really twisted part, is that the CEO said to me, we know this. You know, we're not stupid. We know this. When we take these unicorn valuations and take this money and sell our own shares, we know that our employees are getting screwed. And, um, and I said, well, how do you go to work every day and look these people in the eye and, get them, and tell them they need to work hard and not see their kids and pull weekends and long hours when you know that you're, you've done this to them? And this is one of my favorite quotes of all time. As far as I can tell, nobody here, meaning Silicon Valley, this person said, I've been here my whole life. Nobody here ever feels guilty about anything they do. They believe they are the most moral folks on the planet, but they are not. Um, And I thought, wow, that quote just blew my mind. And and this is a person who has spent his entire career in Silicon Valley and has grown disenchanted with the people around him. Um, My final thought is I think this has to come to an end at some point. I think markets always revert to the historical norms. However, I've got sick of being wrong about when it's going to happen. I keep thinking the bubble's going to blow up, and it doesn't, right? Um, There's a great line that says the markets can remain irrational longer than you can remain solvent, right? So, um, but there are now, note, there are now people trying to come up with ways to short the bubble, to short the unicorns through, um, uh, I guess, financial vehicles. Um, What worries me more almost than the financial bubble is the collateral damage that could happen, because I think these companies are changing the nature of work itself, right? They've rewritten the compact between employers and employees. And while Silicon Valley remains this great engine of innovation, I worry that it has started to favor one set of stakeholders above all others, and that set are the investors, to the detriment of customers and especially to the detriment of employees. I have a concern that the industry is distributing wealth into fewer and fewer hands and contributing ever more to inequality, um, creating a system of haves and have-nots. And I think that has huge implications in San Francisco Bay Area, we've already seen, but I think it has implications across all of the world and across all of society. Um, Thank you. That's the end of my talk. Thank you.
Thank you, Dan. Well, there is so much there to, to get stuck into, but I'd really like to start um, really with this uh, point you raise about the culture fit and how that actually, the other way of looking at it, is just simply biased. So you yourself experienced firsthand ageism, but you observed also, uh, you think, sexism and a bias against race. Uh, no people of colour out of 500 people is extraordinary in Silicon Valley. Now, is that really widespread? Was that just a one-off at the company you're at? And, and if you think it is widespread, how is this being talked about in, in, in the US? I mean, this, it sounds almost scandalous. You, you would think it would be a scandal, right? Because you have this industry that is, the, in theory, the most progressive industry on Earth, the one that's certainly generating more wealth than maybe has ever been generated in history, in one in little industry, and talks a lot about making the world a better place, and yet is in many ways the least diverse industry on the planet. And it's something that I thought maybe was unique to where I was working, but then I started looking around, and no, it's actually... Uh, across all of Silicon Valley from the little companies up to the biggest. So Google, Facebook, and Apple have all started producing this diversity report every year and sort of patting themselves on the back for being so transparent and producing this report. The only problem is every year the report says that they've made no progress from the year before, right? Literally, you can, I, I have a slide that sometimes I throw up. It's just headline after headline of, like, shows little progress, shows little progress. Um, and they kind of say, well, we can't find anyone. That's, that's one excuse. Um, another one is, uh, oh, we don't want to lower our standards. So we, we want to bring in you know, people other than young white men, but, you know, and it's just so offensive, like just so awful on its, and they say it with a straight face. Um, yeah, no, it's a really huge issue now. If you, a very fun exercise, if like me, you someday have way too much time on your hands. You, just, you go through and look at the management team. They, all, most of these companies have a big, uh, big web page with their management team. Look at the Apple management team. It looks like they were made in a lab, like all clones. They are all the same, right? And, uh, and then you look at the board of directors. And you do this company after company. I've created a mega slide with little tiny pictures, and it's just one big sea of white men, you know? Um, and I think they pay lip service to it. I wrote an article in LinkedIn a few months ago saying, when it comes to age bias, tech companies don't even bother to lie. The point being that with race and gender, they at least lie. They at least say we're trying to do better. With age, they really don't even bother to lie about that. They just say, no, no, no. There's a famous Mark Zuckerberg quote that says, young people are just smarter. Now, I don't know. He said that when he was 22. I don't know if he's still going to think that when he's 40 or 50, right? But, um, and there's this idea that, and, and especially in technical roles, um, older engineers just can't keep up. They can't... Um, they can't keep up with these young engineers who know the latest programming languages. There's a very funny anecdote this week in the States. A legendary engineer from Apple, who, the guy who helped port the Mac from the old processor architecture to Intel, apparently a legend in Apple. He resigned, uh, retired in, at age 54 in 2008. And he got kind of bored and recently went out saying, I think I'm going to go get a job at a genius bar. Just eh, something to do. And they didn't hire him. They said, no, uh, thank you. you know, like, and he said as he was walking out, he could hear the three of them saying, like, too old. And he's this you know, legendary engineer. Now, it may be, in fact, like in my case, like I kind of thought, oh, I'll be able to kill as a blogger at some stupid tech company. Maybe he would be a terrible genius bar guy. He might be too smart, right? He might be you know, an engineer. He might be you know, impatient. He might not be the nicest guy. I don't know. But that was the story, is that like, because of his age, this famous engineer couldn't get a genius bar job. So uh, I don't know. It is a huge problem. And um, I don't even know how you begin to solve it. I, think, I actually think until 
the founders and the venture capitalists become convinced that they will make more money with a diverse workforce. I think it's only that, if only in, if it's in their self-interest. Yeah, but then that, that's quite interesting because the making more money, I mean, um, there are, of course, two kinds of arguments for diversity. One is a straightforward moral argument, but the other is actually you will end up with a much better result from having diverse viewpoints in the room. And you give some examples which are almost funny in their incompetence of the way that these young guys who have had no previous experience end up running quite large operations. Uh, and, but they don't know, actually, how useless they are because they've only hired other useless people. <laughs> right. So, uh, I, I, I mean, surely you can make that argument now. It's a, I mean, that's an argument that's, I, I think, fairly well established that actually diversity is good for business. So is that not an argument that's heard in the States? I agree with you. I, I just don't, I, I don't know if, 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 if they do. No, yeah. I, I, I think um, on, on the moral imperative once is it, I once interviewed Bill Gates about, um, he was with the Gates Foundation, spending all this money to, um, I think it was either the clean water or malaria, but a project in Africa that would save X million lives and it would cost this much. And it was ridiculous that you know, for such a relatively small amount of money, we could just eliminate malaria and save millions of people who die needlessly every year. Mm-hmm. And I asked him, it was like one of the most stupid, offensive questions ever, but I sort of asked him, so like, is there an ROI in that? Can you make a case that says, you know, we spend X million mm-hmm. and we get you know, this much back? And he said to me, no, it's just a really good thing to do. Like, no, you shouldn't just let people die for no reason, right? Like, sometimes you don't have to have an ROI, right? Um, and I think that's part of it. And, I, and then I was appalled. I was, like, shamed by Bill Gates, the most evil person in the world. But anyway, it's like, you know, how can you be, you know, get out-eviled by... Uh, but, um, but, but, but so I think that's... But yes, exactly. The, the, the idea, I think, is, first of all, if you say we're only going to hire young white men, you, you cut off 70% of the population... You, you cut yourself off from all that talent, right? All that ability, um, and that the different viewpoint. Like I, I, I do think that that comes with it. Uh, um, so yeah, I think it it is obvious that it would make companies stronger and better. It isn't just about being Mother Teresa and doing you know good work. You yeah, know? well, actually, well, picking up on your um, Bill Gates uh, comment there, which uh, which got a laugh. But in fact, in the book, you praise Microsoft because in comparison to the latest wave of companies. They have that old-style idea of really looking after their employees. You cite the case where people, you know, who employees getting cancer would stay on the payroll, and you know, yeah. whereas in, in this world, people who are sick, whatever, they get cut. And so, actually, you're saying that Microsoft was an example of what good looks like in Silicon and, and Valley, was, yeah, which tells you how far you've <laughs> come, right? Because when you think about, well, yeah, no, they were in some ways a ruthless competitor, right? A very, yeah, yeah no, right. Uh, um, that's, 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 that's true. I think I, I, I had a friend who worked at Microsoft for a long time. He said, look, we created tens of thousands of millionaires. The wealth was really distributed across the com- uh, company. And um, ordinary people you know, made enough to the, you know, be set for life because they were lucky enough to work here. And yeah, you, we would take care of people if you got sick. I can't say, since my book came out, every day I get email from people, countless, countless people telling me their horror stories of, mm. I got sick and I left, and, and while I was gone, I was fired for, you know, I, I abandoned my job. Mm. Or um, you know, just horrible treatment of people, very callous treatment of people, in this mindset of, we're a team, not a family. Yeah, yeah. You know, we need, we need a superstar shortstop, and you're not here, so um, we, we, you know, we had to hire someone else. Well, I'll ask one more question before we go to the audience then. You've been pretty clear about how the Gen Y workforces are actually getting screwed here. I mean, they're having a party, but they're actually getting screwed. So I mean, how is it going to work out for these guys in five years' time when they can no longer get work, jobs in this industry, but they've got no assets, they've, got no, you know, they've not built, they've built up nothing? 
right. because they've been replaced by a new crop of uh, college graduates. I'm um, just down the line. Is this you know? Uh, are none of them waking up to this possibility? It's it just seems curious that I think some are. You know, the, the New York Post ran a, a write-up of my book, and they called it dot conned and I almost wished I'd right. used that yeah, title. I was like, oh, the New York Post are good at titles. <laughs> but, but right, there's this idea that this generation is being shortchanged, and I've, oddly enough, had a lot of, I get a lot of email from people my age who, mm. who are you know, upset about being aged out. But yes, I've had young people, millennials, say, look, I took this job that seemed really cool at this tech startup in New York City, and then I realized I'm just sitting in a room, and I'm basically a fancy telemarketer, and they're working me to death, and where does this lead to? It doesn't lead to anything. And, and they've become very disillusioned about what this is. And so I wonder exactly, are, are we creating sustainable work for people? Uh, or are we just pursuing short-term gain on companies that don't really turn a profit? And you churn people out. You burn them out and churn them out. And um, yeah, and is there always a uh, supply of fresh 22-year-olds to, to run these companies. But yeah, what, what is going to happen to this big overhang of people who can't be employed because they've you know, committed the crime of turning 40? You know, I mean, 40. I mean, 40 is really young. And um, I'm glad you from that. my perspective, right? <laughs> it didn't always seem, I didn't always think it was young. But, um, but, um, but you know, it's young to, be, to have someone say to you, sorry, it's over. Yeah, yeah, you're, yeah. you're done, yeah. Well, let's, let's get some right. questions right. in for the audience. Lots okay. of, um, okay. I think we'll, we'll take uh, groups of three questions, if, if I may, and oh. we'll start with the lady at the front here. First of all, thank you for a great talk. Oh, Secondly, I must apologise for wearing orange. I didn't I, know. Uh, <laughs> I do have a little PTSD when I see it, but it's okay. Yeah. I thought maybe they planted you in the front row. They, they send people to my Oh, contraire. I've just been reading The Big Short by Michael Lewis. Exactly. And yeah. what you're saying is the same story as him, except that... From what I gather, I haven't finished it yet, but it just keeps on going. They had the, the dreadful crash of, was it Freddie Mae? And I can never remember the terms. But right. yeah. They were bundling up mortgages and selling them on. Um, and they seem to come out the other side and continue to do it. Hi. Um, very stimulating. I just wonder how far the, the bubble is going to be bailed out by the Chinese. Okay, good question. Will the Chinese write the rescue? And I hope you are going to make the movie because it'd be much more fun than the social network or the interns. But anyway, um, my question was uh, not just perhaps the employees of the companies, but is it actually the employees of GM or Cisco or the guys who are buying, thinking of Lyft, buying into these businesses late for lots of money? And if it all turns out wrong, you know, it's going to be their workforces who have more debt at the corporate level to cope with and so on. Go for it. So there's, I mean, uh, actually, will the Chinese just, just come in? If the bubble bursts, will other people take opportunity of this to buy out Silicon Valley companies? That one, I, I'm, I'm kind of not qualified to answer, I'm sorry. Um, but uh, I don't know who, who will, you mean, will the Chinese come in and, and buy up these companies at pennies on the dollar? Uh, Uber, for example, might get, might get bought up. I suppose that's a possibility. I'm sorry, I don't have a very good answer for your question. Um, on the, that one, I think there is, the risk I see is that, that old companies old companies are going out to Silicon Valley and trying to imitate them mm. and either buy up, buy up those companies or buy, in, invest in them and also imitate them in some ways. And I feel like in a way what Silicon Valley is doing is legitimizing behavior that a generation ago would have been seen as you wouldn't have done out of a sense of shame. You wouldn't have treated employees that way just because there was a sense of that would be shameful to do that. And now that sense of shame is gone. This is analogous to the situation with taxes where Apple... I think in, in a bygone era, companies paid taxes because they felt like we can't 
God forbid we should be seen as not good corporate citizens. We're going to pay, every, we're going to pay a lot of tax. Um, that sense of shame is gone. And um, I worry that Silicon Valley, by making it almost hip and celebrating these practices that aren't really very good, uh, convinces other people to, to adopt the same ones. So we'll say, have you know, teddy bears in boardrooms across the country. Or to do what Uber is. <laughs> Uber is basically creating a $60 billion company that has no employees. Right, which is if you're a venture capitalist, it's your wet dream, right? But um, right, and, and in fact, there was a, a story recently of a guy who's building a sharing economy company, and he wanted to make his employees actually employees with benefits, and you know, called uh, real employees and categorized that way. And no VC would invest unless he made them contractors. So they want no, no, we want the company without the employees. We, that that would be a really good one, right, for us. And I wonder what happens if GM or Ford or these other big companies say, "Poo, that's not a bad idea. We could just put everybody on a contract and make them, and you know." So you create this surf, you create this class of, of serfs, right? Who are, which is essentially what the sharing economy has become in the States. You, a lot of times you, you get in an Uber, and I get talking to the guys, and it terrifies me because they're like, you can tell they're guys who had a really good job, and now they're driving an Uber, right? And it's like, and then the, the, the message they sell to you about Uber is like, well, it's freedom. It's so great. You don't want to be an employee. This is great. You make your own hours. Like, no, no, dude, I would really like health insurance. So, I have kids, you know. Dan, the RSA is doing a couple of research projects in this area, so we'll get back to you in about three months with the answers, if it's okay. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, How do you see things um, panning out? So what are the scenarios that you see in the future, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and the very ugly? And what what do you want to do next, having had this experience with HubSpot? Um, I'm intrigued to know why and how, at your advanced age, you were employed. <laughs> okay, oh so God. employment, uh, job, job seeking tips uh, for of those of advanced years and scenarios. How will this play out? I know you, you try to avoid, you know, you're going to have to make a prediction before you leave the room. So, how is this going to happen? How's it going to play out? <laughs> I think the question is, and, and, and uh, you know, I, I've asked a lot of people that same question, and, and it seems to be the question seems to be does it happen slowly? And the air kind of comes out and we sort of slowly land. Or does something precipitate it and uh, Trump gets elected or something, you know, even worse. And, and, um, and it's, something happens that makes everything scared and everybody goes running for the exit. So um, I, 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 one person I interviewed for the book was an investment banker who, a former investment banker, now basically retired, but from the old days, who basically put forth those two scenarios and, and said nobody really knows how the air comes out of it. But, and... and uh, um, I, I, uh, I guess I tend, I hope it's the, the former, that it's a, a slow sort of, you know, resetting of, of valuations. Uh, as for what I'm going to do next, I, I hope I'm going to, I think I'm going to write another book because there are things even in this talk that aren't really in my book, but uh, that I've become fascinated with now having written this. And, and having been I'm, I'm inundated with email from people every day telling me their stories, and I realized there was, I had stumbled on something that was bigger than I realized. It wasn't just my own little story. There were, there were a lot of people going through this, and I think there's a, a big change ha- happening in the, way, in the nature of work itself, in the way people work, in the way companies treat employees, and I, I want to write about that. Um, at my advanced age, how did I even get a job? I think they didn't know how old I was, and they, they um, no, I, I, I don't know if, I've asked myself that same question. Um, I don't know why they hired me because I was really way older than everybody else and it was very clear when I got in there. Um, uh, I, I, I must have, you know, I must have talked a good game in the interview or something. But, uh, no, they, 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 one of the founders had seen me talk at a conference and thought, oh, you know, you're a press guy. Maybe you could help us out getting, 
you know, coverage in, in the media, your friends in the media will write about us if you're working here. I think might have, to be very cynical, I think it might have been that. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, there was a gentleman over in the, on the side there. Fantastic um, talk. Um, I just wonder about the ecosystem that's built around it, the, the sort of mashable, the tech crunch, Seth Godin, Eric Rees. How much are they part of this problem? Um, we have a problem in the UK in that um, startup culture seems to be what, it's grabbed lots of people's attention, but um, a developer friend of mine pointed out the other day that it's actually hugely inefficient because it can take £2 million, pa- two million pounds in two years to actually build something that a decent team could build with 20,000 in two weeks. But um, going back to your thing before about understanding the lack of diversity, I think one of the problems is that not only does the industry value unicorn companies, it's looking for unicorn employees. And a unicorn employee is somebody who maybe has full stack development or um, you know, can do lots of different things. And unfortunately, because of the way education is stacked, it's very unlikely that somebody from a more diverse background is going to have that particular combination thereafter at that particular point. So how can we change education to make that happen? On the subject of valuations, you talked about how VCs were remunerated, particularly if they were to deploy their capital. You mentioned 2%. I'm just interested to learn a little more about uh, how those fee structures actually work particularly the encouragement for them to invest money rather than hold it in an uninvested pool. Okay. Um, I'm not an expert, and you probably know more about this than I, but there's a uh, thing called 2 and 20. So you, you make 2% of committed capital every year. You collect no matter what happens, just based on how much money you put to work, and then you carry 20, you get 20% of the profits of, of any investment you've made based on what you exited at or what you market at. So... Um, there is a, a big incentive to put money to work, not to let it sit idle. It, it, money that's sitting idle doesn't do you any good at all. Um, so that's, uh, th- but that's the. I think it's it's a far more complex world, and there are more subtleties and nuance in that. But that's essentially the the, the model for for VC. Um, for the question about education, um, changing it, I think that's a, a huge thing, and we have this push in, in the states to create more STEM graduates. At the same time, we have lots of uh, engineers who are unemployed because they're 40 years old. Uh, it kind of, I, I, we have tech companies going around complaining they can't find talent and they have to issue H-1B visas to bring in people from overseas who essentially really end up getting exploited often and, and treated pretty badly. At the same time, they say, we can't find anyone, but there are people in middle age who are dying to work and don't even want foosball and ping pong <laughs> or beer pong, would really be happy just to have a job and some health insurance. Um, so, so part of it is, yeah, re, re encouraging young people to, to study uh, STEM. Um, but, again, sorry. Bad but, but also, is it worth pointing out that in a lot of, the, in a lot of um, tech companies, I mean, look, most of the employees, I think, at HubSpot right. were in sales and marketing. I mean, it, yeah. so, so theoretically, you can probably train people from a, a wide range of backgrounds to do those kinds of jobs. There's not... There's more excuse for real technical subjects, maybe, that education has got in the way. So, yeah, the, uh, that's yeah. another thing that occurred to me in HubSpot. Like, the vast majority of people working there were not engineers. In fact, there were only about 60 engineers in the whole company, and they were treated very, very well because they were the sort of bread and butter. But, um, yeah, the vast majority of jobs are customer service uh, or sales and marketing or blogging, what I was doing. So, so um, in fact, I, I, one thing that occurred to me, very, the very glib answer about, about age bias was why, I mean, you're selling to presumably people of all ages, um, you know, why would you think that only uh, uh, people in their 20s can either sell to them or support them on customer support, on, on a customer support line? Um, so, okay. 
that was, in, in fact, customer support seemed to be, or many, any of those jobs seemed to be areas where experience would help, would make you, no matter what your experience was, having been around a little bit, maybe help you, you know, understand things. I actually think that I'm better at what I do than I was when I was 25, you know, but, um, or maybe not, uh, but, uh, but, you know, uh, Anyway, so yeah, I, I felt like that, uh, that argument about uh, we don't find enough STEM graduates yet doesn't hold water when you realize that most people are not working in engineering. And there was, the first question was about... The ecosystem of... Oh, the, the, yeah, the cheerleaders around it. That's a very, very clever thing that Silicon Valley has done, is create this ecosystem of cheerleaders for itself. And these blogs are often owned by the same venture capitalists who are investing in these companies. So they own uh, shares in some of the, the, the press that covers them. And so it's no surprise that the press is all uh, very swept up in how great everything is. So, for example, when, when Andreessen Horowitz got very interested in Bitcoin, you suddenly saw all sorts of articles everywhere about how Bitcoin, Bitcoin, Bitcoin's going to change the world, blah, blah, blah. Well, you know, it wasn't an accident that Andreessen Horowitz was investing in a lot of Bitcoin-related startups, and they were getting a lot of hype about how Bitcoin was so amazing. And, uh, yeah, that, that is a real problem. And it's, uh, some of those people aren't owned by the VCs, but they benefit. It's... It's very dumb for me to write a book criticizing Silicon Valley. There's a lot more money to be made in cheering Silicon Valley on, <laughs> being, being positive about it. Honestly, it, it really is. Um, so, and a lot of people have figured that out. You know. So. Well, I think, I've, I've, unfortunately, we have run out of time. People oh, with okay. hands up, I'm really sorry we didn't get to you, but actually that's almost a perfect place to end because uh, we're really glad that you made the dumb step of writing this book. <laughs> yeah. uh, and it's been a pleasure to have you come and talk to us, Dan. So please join me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, why not download our free app to access video and audio files on the go? Just visit our website, thersa.org, and follow the links to the RSA Vision mobile app.